Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the gang, the one you never asked to be a part of. You are listening to the Grief Gang podcast, the show dedicated to breaking down the topic of grief one conversation at a time with me, your host, Amber Jeffrey. This week's guest is Rabbi Steve Leader. Steve is the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple and author of five books. Five books, could you imagine? <laughs> His most recent book, For You, When I Am Gone, was my summer read on my holiday this year, and I could not put it down. And you're about to find out exactly why in this episode. Steve's latest book tackles one of the most requested topics from his last book, writing an ethical will or a meaningful letter about your life. Are you now thinking what on earth is an ethical will? Because that's exactly what I was like when I was reading. But anyway, keep put. He shares 12 questions in this book and prompts to help readers explore their values, beliefs, hopes and dreams and includes examples of ethical wills from a broad range of voices and faiths, both old and young, with and without children, famous and unknown, as well as his own. It is filled with ancient wisdom and wit. I honestly loved it so much. I just I could not put it down. Bless my poor pages were just like rubbed or sand filled. It was a fantastic read. Um, for you when I'm gone, it is moving, it is hopeful, it is inspiring. And I think it is a book that everybody should read. Um, whether you follow a faith or a religion or not, I think this episode can appeal to all. Writing or thinking about an ethical will is not subjective to following a faith. You know, it's it's drilled into us that we should have our ducks in a row for when we die, right? And I know like, I'm only 25 and I know I've got some young people who listen as well as other people who maybe this this topic and conversation of, you know, getting your will and your estate in order is actually something that's to the forefront. I mean, regardless of age, I think we should all be thinking about our wills. But anyway, um, it's drilled into us that you should have our ducks in a row. Like, you know, who gets the house? Who gets this piece of jewellery? How much money goes to this person? But at the end of the day, these things are all just things. What do we really want to leave behind for those that we love? And also, 
what do you think that your person might have written in their ethical will if they had the chance to write one after I recorded this episode with Steve I really got to thinking oh my gosh I wonder what my mum would have wrote down if you know in, in some you know metaverse we'd said you know write your ethical will down what kind of morals and values would she um, have wanted to leave down on pen to paper but I've got you thinking now haven't I <laughs> get your pen and paper at the ready trust me you are gonna need it happy listening and writing Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for being here today on the Grief Gang podcast. How are you? I am I am doing well and the honour is mine and I really mean that. You need to stop being so modest. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I feel that way. So, Steve, introduce yourself. Who are you and what is the role of a rabbi, particularly in the respect of grief, death and dying? Well, who am I is a question I ask myself all the time. And of course, the answer changes. But I, I can tell you that in, in the context of my work, I grew up in a uh, almost like a Jewish ghetto in the middle of Minnesota. Uh, I didn't realize as a child that it's because Jews weren't welcome in other neighborhoods in, the, in our city of Minneapolis. But I, I just grew up in this little tiny, I don't know, 20 block enclave of working class and middle class families. My dad and my uncle owned a junkyard and I'm one of five children. And uh, we, I grew up in a very kind of blue collar existence. And I um, always found religion in the synagogue to be a place of learning and creative expression, which were not things that were valued in my family. But that was the one place that was valued and was acceptable to express oneself creatively and spiritually. So uh, you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to figure out how I chose the profession I chose. Now, what is a rabbi? A rabbi is um, a religious leader. And in the context of, of grief and death and loss, what I really do for people is I structure the chaos. That's what I see my role as when 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 death comes, no matter how prepared we might think we are for the death of a loved one, my father had Alzheimer's for 10 years, you know, and the end, the end was not a secret. And yet when I got that call that he died in his sleep at two o'clock in the morning, I was somehow shocked. What I essentially do is I, I represent a tradition that structures the chaos of death and loss and grief in a very particular way. And, and I am the guide on that journey. I put my arm around a family and say, Amber, here's what we're going to do. Oh gosh, it's maybe even thinking you've just, you know, even in my own experience of so many people that I've spoken with, of just having someone just to guide and hold your hand throughout it. Yes. And not, and, you know, enforce anything, but of, correct. you know, do this, do that, but of just, these are your options. That's and, one thing of options. Yeah. At an even deeper level to help people become comfortable with what cannot be structured, what cannot Gosh, be yeah. organized. So for example, I often say to people, anyone who thinks the shortest distance between two points is a straight line doesn't understand grief. You know, there are two waves. This is one of the things I learned in my journey from Steve the rabbi to Steve the son when my father died. Mm. 
So Steve, Steve Leader, the rabbi, whenever confronted with a wave of any sort, a wave of anxiety, a wave of hard work, a wave of disappointment, uh, a, a wave of, of too much work, my default setting was to plant my feet in the sand, put my chest out forward, and to take the wave. I will stand my ground. I am more powerful than any wave. And then my father died. And I had to learn a different way. And I'm offering this to you when that rogue wave comes. That's one way to, to meet a wave head on. But we all know what happens to, to people who do that. Sooner or later, you end up tossed around like a dish rag, upside down, gasping for air, panicked, smashed against the rocks. So the other way when a wave comes, and this is particularly instructive when it comes to grief, is to just lie down and let it wash over you and float with it. Just float with it until you can stand up again. And, and while floating, this was another lesson that death taught me. And while you're floating, if you are humble enough and vulnerable enough to reach out your hand, you will often find someone standing next to you who will reach back and help lift you from your suffering. Well, thank you, Steve, for sharing that beautiful definition of what a rabbi is in your work. Thank you. And so to touch on your wonderful book, For You When I Am Gone, for anybody who's watching, here it is. Beautiful. In like an envelope. Love it. Steve, I, as I said earlier, I love reading this book so much. And like I said, I feel like I got to know you and your work and all your, your contributing writers to this book as well. And I loved the differing answers between the contributing writers, you know, some short and snappy to the point. Some went round the houses and, you know, <laughs> ethereal and everything. It was fantastic. And then they'll just feel like a one-liner. <laughs> it was great. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> it was fantastic. But can you give us a little bit of a synopsis of to what the book is? And obviously it's made its prevalence is around ethical wills. So what is an ethical will <laughs> and why should we consider writing one? Well, let's start with what it is not, because sometimes it's easiest to understand what something is by understanding what it is not. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> when most people hear the word will, they think of a last will and testament. Yeah. At a certain point in life, most people, most people give a lot of consideration to who gets what and when and how much when they die. We call it a last will and testament. Now think about this for a moment. What is the last and final word that most people receive from a loved one when their loved one is gone, when their loved one has died? What is the final bequest? Mm. It, it comes in the form of a mostly boilerplate legalese document written by someone who barely knew them. And it is entirely about who gets what and how much and when of their money and their stuff. Yeah. And this is a terrible mistake. Because believing that your final word being about who gets what and when and how much is going to comfort and sustain and nurture the people you love mm -hmm. when you're gone is, I often say, like handing them a picture of food. Yeah. It's not 
real. It is not going to comfort them or nourish them or sustain them. No. And this is your final word? Yeah, this is what you leave me? <laughs> right. Now, what do people really want and need mm -hmm. when their loved one is gone? They want their story. They want their life lessons. They want their guidance. They want their blessings. They want their love. Mm -hmm. So the book is a plea for each of us to bequeath to our loved ones what will nourish and sustain them. Mm. Our real legacy, which has nothing to do with the material and everything to do with the emotional and the spiritual. Mm. And these questions, so the book, the subtitle is 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. Mm -hmm. And my editor asked me, how did you come up with these 12 questions in this order? <laughs> because they just, if you really look at them and answer them, they, they just help a person's story unfold. You just, your truth blossoms like a, like a flower in time-lapse photography. Mm -hmm. And I half jokingly said to her, it took me 35 years and 15 minutes to come up <laughs> with these questions. Why did I say that? Because these are the questions I have been asking families when I gather with them the day before a funeral to help them and to help me get to the truth of their loved one's life and story. Yeah. Not the facts. No. The truth. You know, I, I used to teach a course in the seminary here in Los Angeles called homiletics, which is a fancy word for how to write a sermon, a eulogy, and a wedding address. And when I would get to the section on writing eulogies, the first thing I would write on the board was an obituary is the facts. Mm. A eulogy is the truths. Mm. So the fact that I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1960 and went to Aquila Elementary School, that doesn't tell you very much about me other than my age. Yeah. That's just a fact. Now, if I were to say to you, you know, Amber, when I was a young boy growing up in Minnesota, there was a creek that ran through my backyard and I had an old canoe. And when the stress of my childhood and my parents' dysfunctional marriage became too much for me, I would go out as a little boy in that canoe and seek peace and solitude mm. in nature. And to this day, I seek peace and solitude in nature. Now you know something about me. I'm getting a picture of you. Now you have now you know a truth. Yeah. Not a fact. And <clears throat> so these questions are to enable us to get to the truth of our lives and our story. Now this does two things, both extremely important. Yeah. Yes, of course. It leaves an ethical will and guidance, a legacy letter, a nourishing, powerful guide for our loved ones when we're gone. But it does something else too, maybe even more important, which is if you go through this book and you answer these questions and you explore them in the way in which I do, you will have a kind of internal MRI of your internal <laughs> life. Steve, that's literally what I put. I said it when I was kind of writing questions down. I said, these it's begging these internal questions. Yes. And what do you do then when you have an MRI of your internal life? 
you get to hold it up to the light mm -hmm. and you get to ask yourself the most important question I think a human being can ask of oneself, mm -hmm. which is, okay, this is what I say I believe in. This is what I say my truth is. Am I living it? Yeah. Or is my life mostly pretend? Yeah. Is my is life my a lie? Life, if my, is my life mostly kabuki? Oh, is that, that's Have what I lost my way? Have I lost my way? Yeah. Now, that's why this book is not about death. It's about life. And I mm -hmm. think that's why, by the way, surprisingly, millennials are buying it like crazy. Really? I mean, I say really. I'm not surprised, Steve. I'm really I, not surprised. Because we're all going through, and I say this with some degree of irony, thanks to COVID, mm. and I think the war in Ukraine, we're all going through this massive reevaluation. Mm -hmm. COVID caused, now, was it worth a million deaths in America? No. Mm. But let's not let it be worthless either. Yes. Right? So I think the world is asking these kinds of questions, or much of the world. Is this really how I want to live? Is this really bringing me some meaning? Is this really my truth? And if not, what am I going to do about it? And that, that is, in my view, the essence of what it means to be a, to have agency, to be a free human being, to be something other than an animal, is to know that we are not necessarily shackled to yesterday's ways or trapped in yesterday's ways. We can change. We can be more in alignment with our truth. And this, this book, this exercise is, is my way of holding your hand through that exploration. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And I, I think for so long, I've, I've said, no, I don't regret nothing. And, and especially in context to my grief and kind of um, after the death of my mom, of how things have played out with potential family members and friends. And I'd, whenever I spoke about it, I'd be like, no, but I don't regret it, though. I don't regret it. Like, because although I'm grateful of where I am today and the lessons that I've learned, there are some regrets of how maybe I acted. Yes. And, or. Yeah. Or. And this is what fascinated me in this chapter in my exploration of the question of regret in people's lives. What I discovered is that what most people regret most is not something they did. Yeah, that's the part I loved. Yeah, It's something they didn't do. Mm. 
you know, from a religious context, there are two types of sins, but in a secular context, let's just call them mistakes. Yeah. There are two types of mistakes that people make in life. There are the mistakes related to things we have done. Those are mistakes of commission. Mm-hmm. But there are more profound mistakes of omission. The things we didn't do, the things we didn't say, the time we didn't show up, yeah. the path we didn't take because of fear or, or the judgment of others. Mm-hmm. For most people, their greatest regret is a regret of omission. Mm-hmm. Now, why is that an important question? Because as much as what do you regret seems to be a question about the past, mm. it's not. It's really a question about whether or not you're going to have a different future. Yeah. When people come to talk with me about regret and sit with me in my office on what I call my couch of tears, <laughs> one of the things I say to them to, to quickly and honestly, bluntly redirect them Let's just say it's you, Amber. You come to me with some terrible regret. The first thing I would likely say to you is, you know what, Amber? I have given up all hope of a better past. <laughs> and it, in context like that, yeah. And you it immediately redirects the conversation Absolutely. to the future. Mm. So, And why is... What do you regret the first of the 12 questions? Because it immediately indicates that we we use the past to inform the future, not to dwell yeah. in it. And we that question, to answer that question, requires a lot of honesty and humility and vulnerability. And so it puts the reader in the headspace to answer the following 11 questions. Yeah. Because if you're not going to go through this with a, de- a, a healthy degree of humility and transparency. Yeah, with yourself. Yes, then, then, then you're wasting your time. You're, yeah, your own time. And I think, yeah, it's fantastic. And that's, more that's, more, yeah. that's more pretend. Exactly, yeah. We, we could have gone nice, you know, with when was the time you led with your heart? You could have started off with that. I'm like, oh, that's yes. nice. You're like, no, I'm coming with the hard facts. Yes. And I love that because there are other questions and yeah, there's a series of 12 questions, but, um, and just, you know, this simple simplicity of, you know, what is love? And just, yeah. You know, what's interesting about these simple, seemingly simple questions. Mm. There are questions that we intuit the answer to, but when we actually have to articulate it, it is close to impossible. Yeah. Uh, you you would likely not know this being being in the UK, but there uh, many years ago there was a very famous case in the United States Supreme Court about trying to define obscenity. Okay. It was a case. It was a pornography case, and it was a question of is this pornography or is this art? Mm. And there was a just a justice named Potter Stewart who was asked by the court to define obscenity, and what he said was, "I can't define it." but I know when I see it. Yeah. And this is true of so many of our values in life. What is love? We know it when we feel it, but it is extraordinarily difficult to define. But Mm. if we push ourselves to do that, 
then we can have more of it in our life and we can actually teach the value of love if we can move beyond just saying something like, well, you just know it when you feel it. No, no, mom. Yeah. Mom, I really want to know. Go deeper. What is love? How did you know? Yeah. And I also want as well. Yeah. And when, when you say, you know, what is love? And I think, Amelia, when I first read that, when I, you know, what is love? I immediately started thinking of people. And then as I was reading and going along and I went, well, my love is, is more than in just the people in my life that I love. I love taking 30 minutes out of my day to read my books. Yeah. I love being barefoot on the grass. It's yes. things like that when I immediately, it was interesting for me of how immediately I went to people. And then as the pages unfolded, I start to go, no, there is also love outside of a relationship yeah. and, and what does that look yeah. like and then how can i yes. put more love back into my life for me yes but it Brilliant. all stems from pushing oneself to define mm. these things you know it's it's like um try for example to write instructions on how to tie a shoe <laughs> try it yeah <laughs> Now, this is something we all know how to do intuitively from, from a very young age. Yeah. But try, try Gosh. describing it. <laughs> so and you get your fingers and you get the bow right. and you're doing it. <laughs> right. It's almost impossible. <laughs> try describing how something tastes. Yeah. It's, Without it's, saying, it, tastes like spaghetti yeah. bolognese. <laughs> right, right. No, exactly. Right. <laughs> so if you can... Push yourself to do that in the form of an ethical will. Mm. Now you're getting to the kind of, you know, umami of life. Yeah, yeah. Indescribable beauty and, and, and the muck of it all. Yeah. Now you're telling the truth about your story in a way that your loved ones will value for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. And then so to... To touch on then, so, you know, we're sitting here talking about ethical wills. And so, Steve, I want to ask, what is something that's in your ethical will? You have a wife and two lovely children and, and many other people in your life that you love and who love you. What are sort of the things that are in your own ethical will if you're happy to share? Do you want to take the time for me to read it? Go for it. Oh, I love this. Guys, this is VIP. <laughs> I love that you have it to hand as well, like keeping it. And then also as well, it's um, I think when I was thinking about when I was thinking about like right, because I want to do this, and um, for when I start reflecting, I was like, I feel too, in a way, too young to be writing of ethical will. And then I was like, what I've, I have experienced so much, and I have, and I thought, hang on, this isn't this is a doc that's documents that's you know edited amber yeah as you go along through life i have written two one at 40 and one at 60 and i would yeah. say to you amber are you really too young yeah. to ask yourself if you're living your truth mm. really how can one be too young for that or too old for that you know i, I um when the book launched a couple months ago uh, i was on a morning talk show and the host asked me one of those tricky journalist questions at the end. And she mm -hmm. said, Rabbi Leader, if you had to define your book in two words, what would they oh. be? Oh. <laughs> and 
but it came to me immediately. And I said, the two words, the two words would be don't wait. Fantastic. Don't wait. Mm. So this is my ethical will to my children. Thank you. Dear Aaron and Hannah, the finest moments of my life have been with you and mommy sitting around our kitchen table laughing. I never feel richer or more at peace with the world than in those moments. That kind of love is more important than anything. Spend your life with a person as good as mommy and you will have many of those moments. And don't worry, you will know in your heart when that person arrives. It is a powerful, healing, beautiful kind of love. Grasp it. Have a healthy relationship with work. Do your best at it. But your work is not the same thing as your life. I often confuse the two and hope you will less so. Spend time in nature. It will remind you of God, of true greatness. It will calm you cause you to pause, breathe, stand still, listen. It will help you feel humble and small in profound and important ways. Think of me when you are out there. Feel and know that my soul is with you. Do not roll your eyes at religion. Celebrate what makes you different. There is much to learn, much from our ancestors, from prayer, the Sabbath, candles, warm bread and wine, generosity and faith while gathered around a table with people you love, much. When you worry, remember that most things turn out better than we expect. When anxiety, sorrow, loss and pain come, lean on the people you love. Do not suffer alone. It is much worse that way. This is another reason you should look for someone like mommy to love. I would not have been able to breathe without her. I used to love to dance, but when I became a more public person, I stopped dancing at weddings and parties. I allowed my fear of what others might think of me, fear of being a spectacle to keep me from dancing. I regret that now. It was a bad example to you and robbed me of joy. Don't let fear of what others might think keep you from dancing or singing or loving. Let nothing and no one suppress what your soul longs for. Live so that you do not die with a longing soul. Count your blessings. When you are feeling less than or want more or admired in self-pity, which happens to us all, look around and count your blessings again and again and again until you tally a hundred of them. Everything is easier when you are grateful. Feel for others. People behave badly because they are damaged. Let your first impulse be one of empathy. That being said, there will be a handful of people in your life who demand too much, who are mean, narcissistic, negative, causing you to feel terrible about yourself. Cut these people out of your life. You cannot fix them. Be good, and the rest works out. 
See the world with the people you love. Cherish time. It matters so much more than things. Mine, with you and mommy, has made my life worth living. I wish for you that kind of love now. I wish for you that kind of love when I am gone. Say the mourner's prayer and light a candle for me when I am gone. Feel its warmth and know I love you still. Dad. Steve. Oh, I'll just take a moment. How effortlessly this poured out of me and will I was going to ask, how was that writing? After having considered all of these questions and my responses, it poured out of me in 20 minutes. Wow. And I have found this to be true generally. You know, I've led ethical will writing workshops all over the country for a decade. And getting people into the right headspace takes 45 minutes or an hour. But yes. then I literally only give them 15 minutes to write. Mm-hmm. And, and it is amazing what rushes out of their heart and soul. Yeah. Listening to you read that... And even through, there's actually a part in your book that kind of uh, picture of your children and um, just made me just firstly listen to you then saying that from someone who who lost a parent and who, for no wrong of herself, didn't leave me something like that. I, I, I feel so much, um, like gratitude, maybe for lack of a better word, for your children to know, but just joy. I think joy, I was beaming as you were reading that, of the joy to know that even when you're no longer here and their hearts are heavy, that they have that to come back to time and time again. And there's so many points in it for different parts of their life of know when to cut people out like I can imagine having that for my mum of there are certain people in this world who will you know you cannot fix them and they do not have the honour to be in your life know when to say goodbye gosh I have a a suggestion for you Mm. and I'll give you the backstory quickly I have a very very dear friend whose husband was one of the first victims of COVID in Los Angeles Mm. at a young age he was in his 40s they were married and had a six-month-old baby. And <clears throat> she's now a talk show host, and I was on her show, and we were talking about the book and ethical wills and these questions. And then after we finished taping, she leaned over and said, I, I wish Nick had done this mm. for Elvis, who's, who's their little boy. Yeah. So because Elvis is going to want to know who, who was my dad. Who what did that? he believe? So I I said to her, her name is Amanda, I said, you know, Amanda, maybe you should answer these questions on Nick's behalf for Mm -hmm. Elvis. And you should ask Nick's mother and his sister and his aunts and uncles to to answer these questions as Nick would have answered them. So that you can say, look, daddy didn't answer these for himself, but this is what I think daddy would have said. And this is what grandma thinks daddy would have said. Mm -hmm. So I would say to you, Amber, 
if there are people in your life who knew your mother very well, have a conversation with them. What, yeah. How do you think mom would have answered this question? Yeah, my gosh. Because I think you will find it to be a very, very rich experience. Yeah. And even me just even thinking now of what we were touching on earlier of um, thinking of the past and not for the future of I'm thinking, well, my mom didn't write it in the past. She didn't do it. And actually I can look forward and go, okay, she didn't, but what can I make that look like in my future? It's not directly from her, but it's an accumulative of people who, loved and were loved by her so i still yes, can get it in some ways, in some yeah. ways our inner circle has a clearer perspective on our life and values than we do exactly you know one of my one of my favorite uh aphorisms is from marshall McLuhan, who was a canadian philosopher and he said i don't know who discovered water but it wasn't the fish <laughs> so we sometimes lack perspective on our own lives yeah and the observers in the inner circle can tell us quite a bit. Yeah. And so I, I would urge you to have these conversations. I think you'll find it to be a very beautiful experience. So do I, a very cathartic experience. Thank you for that. I'm actually going to really consider, especially with my brother. I think that yes. could be really, really cathartic for us. Yes. And to finish off, Steve, I wanted to ask you about your dad. Firstly, what was your dad's name? Uh, my dad's name was Leonard. Uh, Leonard. People, Most people called him Lenny. But uh, some people called him Leonard. Of course, I called him dad. <laughs> yeah, and he was his dad to me. And so did your dad leave an ethical will? And if he did, he didn't. <laughs> and so he didn't. What are some of the things that you think your dad would have written? And more so, what are the life lessons and the ethical lessons that you have taken from your dad, Steve? Well, I, I was honored to uh, deliver the eulogy for my father. And I tried to articulate from my perspective and that of my siblings and my mother, what, what his truth was. Now, my father grew up on public assistance. He grew up very poor <clears throat> and he barely graduated high school. My parents got married at 17 and 18 and had five children before they were 30. So my father was not a well-educated person, but he was probably the smartest person I've ever met. My father, one time he said to me, I thought I was wrong once, but I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he had extraordinary street smarts. Yeah. He was an extraordinary judge of character. He had an extraordinary bullshit meter. Mm. He, he just really understood the human condition. And my father was a bit of a professor about life. And the way he taught his modality was Yiddish expressions. Mm. He had a Yiddishism for every situation. <laughs> sometimes it was a single word, sometimes an expression. So yeah. my father's ethical will, in a sense, although not written, were these expressions that he applied to sum up people and situations. Mm. Uh, you know, um, I'll give you one small example. When I was complaining once to him, not even complaining, he asked me, how is the fundraising going for the synagogue? Because mm -hmm. I have to raise a tremendous amount of money to yeah. feed this yeah. enormous organization. And I said, you know, it's really difficult. I don't, I don't know if I can get to the finish line with what we need. And he said to me in Yiddish, mm -hmm. now you have to understand that my father was a bit of a perv and everything he said was a double entendre. 
it was always it always had some kind of dirty undertone to it, right? Right, and this was true here. Asmishtuptas gatus means if you push, it goes. <laughs> so on the one hand, it was pure dad because it was filthy, but also. He was saying to me, stop feeling sorry for yourself and make another call and make another call and make another call because if you push, it goes. Yeah. That was my dad. So my the legacy he left me is a legacy of very hard work. Mm-hmm. Push and it goes. Yeah. He left me um, a legacy of... Uh, of judging people based on experience, not on what you hope to be true, but what is evidenced as truth. He left me a legacy of enjoying the moment when my father was enjoying himself. And it usually involved eating something inexpensive, but delicious and plenty of it. He would just look at me and he would say, he would ask rhetorically, are we living? In other words, In other words, we are living. This is life. Enjoy this moment. I love that. Are we living? We're living it up. Yeah. Enjoy. And by the way, it was always something so simple. Yeah. A a hot fudge Sunday. He'd look Mm. at me and say, are we living? (laughs) This is from a kid who had two pairs of pants growing up and whose family burned wax paper in the winter to stay warm. So he had that perspective. Mm. And uh, I think of my dad. My father was incredibly frugal. We were not poor, but we lived like we were poor. Mm -hmm. To give you an example, my father reused his dental floss. Mm. Because it was a perfectly perfectly good piece, right? Exactly. (laughs) And it was his. So, (laughs) And so I frugality and... You know, I, I still, I turn off every light in every room yeah, when I leave. Every switch, yeah. Every switch, because when I was young, the rhetorical question was, do you work for the electric company? <laughs> Go back downstairs and turn off the light. Yeah. So, and he also taught me by way of the negative. Yeah. You know from the book and from my previous book, my father was frightening and harsh mm. and crude. Mm. And he, I grew up in a very kind of militaristic parental modality. They knew nothing about parenting. I was never once put to bed yeah. and snuggled with a parent. I was never once read a book. We had no children's books in our house. We had no toys in our house. They didn't know these things. And so I also learned what not to do. Mm. My father's sins of omission. And my mother's too. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm a, I'm a better parent. I, I think all of us have to learn to make peace with the dissonance of our, of our view of our parents. Mm-hmm. I love them. I hate them. I love them. I hate them. They were wonderful. They were terrible. They were wonderful. They were terrible. As my children will have to make peace with my life yeah. and my parents. But um, I wish my dad had written it. But in a way, he did through this repetition of these of these Yiddishism, you know, when I'm, when I have to make a difficult choice, I, I have one of those jobs where whatever I'm doing, I'm simultaneously disappointing someone else. Yeah. And my father would always say, you can't sit in two chairs with one tuchas. Right? <laughs> you, 
you know, uh, and you're right. You can't put one ass you in can't. a chair. You, you can't. can't. <laughs> you know, um, so, you know, um, my father had a soft spot for the poor <clears throat> and the vulnerable. He would hire uh, men coming out of prison. He, he was, he lent everyone money. Mm. He had this other Yiddish expression, which was, I won't say it in Yiddish, but, um, in English, it's when the bride, when a poor bride gets up to dance, the band takes a leap. I read that, yeah, and I, I, I didn't understand that one. Well, the band, when a poor girl gets up to dance, yeah. the band does not break. Uh, they're like, oh, there's, yeah. There's no music. No. In other words, in other words, there's real, there's sadness and suffering and poverty. Yeah, and we, and we ought to be sensitive to that because that's not how look he, the other way. Yeah, right. That's how he grew up. Yeah. So don't be indifferent mm. to the suffering of others. Mm. That's a beautiful legacy that I received from my father. That is. Thank you, Steve. I want to finish this episode with, uh, I mean, there's many parts in this book that's highlighted for me, but this one in particular, because I I loved it and it touched on your children and um, it almost, I feel like there's an element of me, future me, when I have children in it. So, Yeah, it's page 171. And it goes, (laughs) I often say to my children, we're in the midst of some excellent moment. Remember me this way. Tell your children about it. Sometimes they roll their eyes and tell me to stop being so lifey. But mostly they listen and quietly take a mental picture to summon at will decades from now. They know my advice to capture a moment isn't just that of their father, but of someone who has heard a thousand families share their memories a day before a loved one's funeral. Someone who knows what sticks in the mind and lives in the heart long after we are gone and that we are never really know when that day will be. And I love that because I feel there's times when I'm with my friends and family now, I'm just like, anyway, my kind of living is, I fucking love you guys. And that's my. (laughs) Yes. Are we living? Are we living? Oh, that that's living. My, that is that is that paragraph there for me is like you'll remember me this way is your yes, version yes. of your dad's. Are we living? <laughs> yeah, and and let's close with this. You know, um, I don't know about you, but I I found that as a during and as a result of of COVID, of being locked down, of being isolated, and of my father's death, I I have found myself saying I love you. With such ease and frequency now, I, I, I don't. I wasn't a withholding person before, but now I say it to so many people so mm. much more often, and I mean it. Yeah, I really mean it. So, what, what in the end does all of this lead us to realize? Hopefully, ideally, is that no matter how many t- times we say "I love you," and no matter how many times we hold and are held by the people we love. It's never enough. Hmm. Have more of it. Steve, thank you so much for being a guest today on the Grief Gang podcast. I, My cheeks hurt. I've been smiling so much. Mm. And I feel I've learned so much. So thank you. And I from you. Thank you, Emma.
what an episode isn't steve just great like what a great human being we honestly could have spoken for hours he is so wise and warm and funny oh my god i was belly laughing um i'm so intrigued to see what this episode has brought up for you guys um if it's made you think about writing your own ethical will and what you might put in it let me know drop me a message on instagram or ping me an email i'd really really love to hear from you you can find and connect with steve and his fantastic work on instagram by searching steve underscore leader so that's steve underscore l-e-d-e-r you can visit his website at www.steveleader.com and there you can also buy and read his latest book for you when I am gone and if you are thinking about writing that ethical will it will massively help you and guide you Um, and even if you're not thinking about it it's just a life-changing read to be honest honestly it really is thank you so much for tuning in this week this new season has had such great and lovely feedback and i'm so so grateful so i will see you next week Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.